Nightcaps of the Living Dead. Promising Young Podcast. Spring has sprung! We are back and we are wiping our noses, hoping it's pollen and not COVID. We're vaccinated, but I'm still suspect. I can't smell. <laughs> I have my rosé and I have some soup going. Um, gee, what are you drinking? I feel like this is spring seasonal. What are you drinking? I am drinking a glass of Prosecco. Oh, that's a very fancy flute, by yes. the way. Yes. In a fancy flute. And this is in honor of the scene with Alison Brie. <gasps> oh, where... stop it. You were so Carrie funny. Mulligan fills it up with ginger ale to <laughs> pretend that she's drinking to get Alison Brie drunk. But I prefer to get drunk like Alison. So. <laughs> and I'm sure that you wouldn't have any qualms with somebody wandering into your hotel room. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll be like, oh. <laughs> Thank you, Carrie Mulligan. <laughs> Okay, so I, that being said, we're discussing Promising Young Woman tonight. And um, before we go into that, I do want to say maybe it's my allergy medication and all liquid diet talking, but I do want to give a shout out really quick, a huge, huge thank you to you guys for listening to us during this pandemic. We all got through it together. We're on the other side. And you guys really gave me and G... A, a reason to like really push through and we got like a lot of love on american psycho people loved american yes. psycho so we're going from female gaze to female rage tonight so let's see if that works um so we are going to discuss promising young woman and i do have to throw out some disclaimers first of all this is a spoiler heavy episode if you have not seen this movie you absolutely should but um the third act is very divisive amongst audiences so that alone like we we have to go into a hard discussion about that it was um quite the topic amongst people at sundance when it first debuted to all throughout the year people had very different reactions to it and um yeah and it cleaned up the the awards it got gee what was it they they got a bafta they got the academy awards they got, they got two two baftas they got the best original screenplay and also the best uh british film of the year which is interesting because a lot of people would not even know that this is a british film because right. this is a film about the united states and about american characters living mm-hmm. in ohio mm-hmm. so it's interesting that it wins Best British Film of the Year because oh. it was made by Brits. Oh, right. And um, and Emerald. Emerald, Emerald Fennell, Fennell. Who is a superstar in her own right, but more on her later because she's, she's... Yes, because she's everything. We impressive. have to talk about her. Um, right. This screenplay, it got Critics' Choice Award. It won WGA and my personal favorite, the Indie Spirit Awards. Um, this screenplay is phenomenal. The acting is great. The director, um, she, this was her first feature film. How crazy is that? So Emerald Fennell and Phoebe Waller-Bridge of Fleabag fame, they're BFFs. Mm -hmm. And Emerald was a showrunner for Killing Eve. Um, not only has she been writing and acting Forever. She was not only the <laughs> she she was not only the showrunner. She wrote the entire second season. Yeah, she's a yes. powerhouse. So uh, she has had an illustrious career as an actress through the years. 
You probably have seen her in things like The Danish Girl, um, hmm. Anna Karenina with um, with uh, Kira. Yes, with Aww. Kira Knightley. Okay, and and Albert Knopf's, where she met Philly, Philly Waller Bridge. Um, <laughs> Say that one more time. <laughs> Phoebe Waller Bridge. <laughs> And she probably is going to be. Apparently, they're already saying that she's going for the EGOT because she's going to be nominated for. I mean, she's so young, and she is a triple, quadruple threat. I mean, good God, this woman's also. She made this movie while pregnant, and also she went to the Oscars while second time pregnant. Right. (laughs) So she pops babies while she works. And to to be shooting a film and not drink the entire time, props to her, man. Like, she has my utmost respect. Oh, I have a fun story about the drinking. So Carrie Mulligan was really insecure about um, acting drunk. It's Apparently hard. that's one of the hardest, the hardest things hard. to do you, an as acting, an actor. An acting trick is you're supposed to remember yourself at your most drunk. Like when you're just like, oh man, I was like so messy that one night, yada yada, and pretend to be sober. You're supposed to focus across the room on a wall or on your co-actor and really try to stable yourself and try to convince the other person that you're not that drunk, which is what I do to you a lot. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's what what, um, Emerald told her. I was like, well, actually, Carrie... Your character is never drunk in this movie. She's just pretending to be drunk. So no matter what you do, you'll be good at it because it's just pretending. You're just pretending. And she apparently, Carrie, really appreciated that direction. That's an excellent direction. Because it made her more comfortable. (laughs) She's like, you're not really drunk. and The audience will know that you're not really drunk. Okay, so in a nutshell, our protagonist, Carrie Mulligan, is traumatized by the rape and suicide of her best friend, Nina. So the event consumes her. She's obsessed with vengeance. She drops out of medical school and then she goes to bars and pretends that she's really fucked up. And then when these guys bring her back to their apartments and try to put the moves, even though she protests like, no, no, I don't want to. No, like, because no means no, everybody. Um, When she calls them on it, she scares them shitless. (laughs) And ultimately, it's all kind of a rehearsal or a buildup to her main objective her bigger plan of terror and accountability exactly so one interesting thing about this movie that i noticed on the rewatch because i saw it with you for Mm -hmm. the first time right yeah then we watched it for the first time together because i was super i've been waiting to watch this movie for a year i was really excited about it but did not want the spoilers and you and i watched this with fresh eyes together the first time the first time in puerto rico in puerto rico um so in the rewatch, I noticed how genius the screenplay is because, okay, a screenplay, if you you know go to film school and everything you learn about a screenplay is that the first act or the first sequence sets up the routine and then something happens that disrupts the routine mm-hmm. of the main character. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the genius about this movie is that the routine of the main character is that she goes out and picks up men and terrorizes them for being rapey. And then <laughs> the disruption of the routine is that she meets a guy that could potentially be a love interest. So it's like it starts as this thriller that turns into a romantic comedy, maybe. Yes. But not really. But you're, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I think that is very well said. I didn't know too much about it. I 
just read the log line and saw the trailer. And in that first scene where um, Adam Brody takes her home, you know, they have that beautiful wide shot of her on the couch. And she's wearing kind of like this weird 80s business wear that's not very attractive. I'm like, what? What's going on here, girl? And I did not really know what the movie was too much about. I got that hint that it was like very American psycho that, mm-hmm. you know, for for me as a woman, I'm just like whenever guys get a little too rapey or too, they overstep your boundaries, you're just like, oh, did some guy push her too far one night? And then she liked the thrill of it and just started doing this on the regular. I mean, I had no idea. And they do trick you out to after she meets um, Adam Brody and he takes her home to the apartment. And he's just like trying to be a nice guy. And immediately it's pointed out how nice guys are not typically nice guys. This is a total weaponization of this characteristic. Um, and the casting also is ingenious because it's Adam Brody, Bo Burnham, who is a, com- a brilliant comedian and director, and um, Max Greenfield from New Girl. There are all these really, really nice, lovable guys cast in romantic comedy leads, and they're pretty terrible through their actions but girls want to love them so well, they're I, perfectly cast perfectly cast perfectly i mean like part of the reason it worked part of the reason she deserves that best director nomination no she knew what she was doing um it's because the the movie works because you believe bo is it bo berman i don't want to say bo burnham bo burnham mm-hmm. you totally fall in love with him the way she does he's such a sweetheart so when it when it all goes wrong, you feel it. Yeah, You're and like, oh. so it, the twist works so well because he's playing that role. Mm-hmm. Um, and but going back to the beginning for a second, I when you just mentioned American Psycho, I thought, oh my god, we just did American Psycho. That first scene <laughs> is like this is the sequel to the American it is, Psycho. It is the companion piece. Is this rage. Chloe Savini's story after the end of American Psycho? Because she's dressed like a like a kind of working woman. Yeah. And Chloe, like a legal assistant. Chloe? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Chloe was the only person in the movie who had her own scene that Patrick right? Bateman was not in. So I thought, oh, this is the Chloe Savini story. <laughs> this is where <laughs> Chloe <laughs> takes off. <laughs> um. And and whenever she's um done with with Adam and like scares the shit out of him, I, it had that American psychoness feel of she's eating the jelly donut and the camera pans up of like there's like the jam on her leg on her arm and then reveals that she's eating like a jelly donut. But it makes it you uneasy. Like yeah. yeah, you're like you're really unsettled. You don't know where this like she's unhinged. You're you're a little, you know, uncomfortable from the first five minutes and also I think like one of the first lines of the movie they set the tone I can't remember I think it's like an offside dialogue they're like fuck her fuck her like these guys are talking about a dumb girl quote unquote that Adam Brody was dating yeah yeah somebody at work or something yeah that was like some woman I think they were talking about a woman who they all work at some firm yeah and, and she was just, a power they're talking boss. about the only yeah power a power competitor or something it's the bros from american psycho it's that like scene where they're showing justin thoreau's son and (laughs) friends (laughs) (laughs) little justin jr hanging out with their business cards at a restaurant also really quickly like a cool visual thing that she does the opening with a charlie xc song yeah boys boys. drink drink. (laughs) um that they she shows the, the the boys dancing 
and it's like the th- the way they think things are happening, and then it cuts to that Y where everything looks awful, mm-hmm. and it's. And I always notice it's so funny that it's only the guys dancing in the dance floor and the women are not in the dance floor. And it's just these guys dancing with each other. And they all think they're in this like amazing world. They're in some <laughs> music video, but really it's just a big old sausage party, which, you know, <laughs> nothing that wrong that with that. But... Hysterical. <laughs> um, so that, but the idea that like you think when you're drunk, you think things are a certain way, but be- and I actually thought it reflects, um, Carrie's uh, or Cassie's perspective because she's not drunk so she can see everything how it looks. She knows exactly what's going down. Yeah. So I thought that was a cool kind of visual thing that she did at the beginning. And then of course the rendition of um, it's raining men. Men. Yeah. So she brings these men to justice by just um, and I think Emerald Fennell talked that her idea for the movie came from that simple moment when the guy is going down uh, Edinburgh is going down on her and she says drunk what are you doing? Are you and then doing? she goes, what are you doing? Like the switch of voice yeah. to from drunk to sober. That, that was, the, that was the first thing she thought about for this movie. And she built the entire movie around that moment. Wow. And what would happen if, if a guy got caught? And so immediately the movie reveals that what she's kind of unveiling about the dating scene and the drunken, it's, it's all about power. It's because they can dominate these women because they're, in vulnerable drunken positions and also loose boundaries they don't really it's about boundaries as well also but they don't really want to hook up with a sober woman right because she always says well i'm here i'm sober now why am i no longer interesting Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know it's like because you cannot dominate that person and so there's a mini review i mean already in 10 minutes the movie has given you a powerful statement about heterosexual dating in the 2000s <laughs> yeah and and what i really do like i mean we talked about how this movie crossed a lot of different genres from revenge thriller to horror like straight up horror to comedy um this has been labeled as a me too movie which is why people were not happy with that third act but i was very i was totally satisfied by the third act were you yes no i think it's because emerald fennell is Hitchcock. Yeah, she's, yeah. she's she's Hitchcock reborn in a wonderful, beautiful woman. <laughs> so after Adam, and then she has she sees the second guy, the guy who was a novelist, and she confronts him. Oh, McLovin, but he's like this emo guy and talking about his book and all this shit. And she's like, "What's what's my op- occupation? We have a connection. You're saying all this bullshit." Like she calls him out on the spot. He can't answer any kind of question. And then she finally says. What's my name? And that was satisfying to the viewer at the time, especially if you're a female audience member. But also 10 minutes in before we meet um, Bo Berman. Mm -hmm. So already the movie is the routine of the movie is already a brilliant other movie. Mm -hmm. Right. The idea that she's this serial, I call it justice. So she brings these men to justice and teaches them a lesson. She's a Dexter, a hot, sexy Dexter of sorts. Right. (laughs) A Dexter (laughs) with a death wish. Um, So we learned that she works at the coffee shop with Laverne Cox, the fabulous Laverne Cox. Oh my gosh. If you put Laverne Cox in any movie, that's immediate real estate value because not only is she a phenomenal actress she shows up and there's power and grace on the scene she has a very tiny minor role in this and she just is so impactful 
immediately I thought for the character, I'm like, here's a trans black woman running her business and she's really good friends with Cassie because she's dealt with a lot of shit in her life and she doesn't judge Cassie for her grief. And Cassie is dealing with grief in a way of where she's obsessed with it, where it's consuming her. She's a shell of a person. And that it affects people differently, you know? And here Laverne is trying the best she can, and she does not judge this girl. I just, with Laverne being in a couple of scenes, like, I got it. Just got it. Got that character. Yeah, and and there's an element of Cassie's grief has become, or the way she deals with the grief has become a kind of addiction, right? So, like, part part of the movie deals with is, like, the... The second act is all about like, oh, maybe she'll pull out from this pattern or this addiction that she has to bringing these men to justice to basically avenge her friend. But anyway, Bo Berman shows up. She spits in his coffee. <laughs> he he drinks the spit coffee. And it's like the beginning of a romance. All of a sudden, the movie, it's a rom-com. And he's so adorable and they cute. They had this series da-da-da. of meet-cutes. And they're going on dates. And you're like, you have hope for this girl. And like, all of a sudden, you're, you shift. You shift knowing this girl has experienced darkness. And then you just love Bo immediately. So you kind of forgive everything. You're like, yeah, let, let's go on this adventure. You totally abandon that we were in this dark place. Dark place. But it's also about her overcoming her trauma. So she has that one scene where Bo does lead her close to the apartment. And, he, mm-hmm. and they have that awkward, like, I'm just going to go home. And she kicks the the trash can. And she's really pissed off. She thought this guy, she she cannot get over seeing men in a terrible right, way, right? right? Because of what she experienced. Mm-hmm. So she wants to believe in this guy. But he did one thing. But then he realized that he was fucking up. And da-da-da. so this it's the this really dark film becomes this potential for a romantic comedy. But as we know, romantic comedies are very flawed <laughs> in their perspective. And that's part of what the movies play with. And so as this second act goes on, which the second act I think begins with whether she's going to overcome her addiction to her revenge or her dark trauma that she's dealing with, which we don't know everything about. But in the second act, slowly gets revealed, right? Mm-hmm. So then she decides, and this is when the, the one, two things start showing up, mm-hmm. which is like where you say that the, the Uber plan. So there was like this plan of just picking up men and, and teaching them a lesson. That was her, that was her way of before. coping. And then she started formulating an overall like life plan. Here's what I noticed the second time. So the routine was more about picking up men and teaching them a lesson at random bars. But then... The trigger, so here's the lie of the movie. So the movie, you think the second act is about this love story with Bo Berman. But really, it's the trigger when he mentions that guy's name. So to me, the movie kind of does a double act two, where you think the movie is this romantic comedy about her overcoming her trauma and her obsession with revenge by meeting Bo Berman. But really, when Bo Berman mentions the name Al Monroe, there's this music cue that goes really dark, on Carrie Mulligan's face, and this is what triggers her uber revenge, where she's actually going to go after the people who actually wronged Nina, as opposed to just random men. So question, when when you and I first saw this in Puerto Rico, <laughs> we had had a day of partying and with rum and the beach, and we're like, we really want to see this, and we watched it. And the entire time, the first time that we saw this, we're like, Nina was the friend and not a sister, right? Like, we were so out of it. Yes. And then and then, <laughs> the second rewatch, I'm like, oh, my God. We're 
fucking idiots. Like, of course, this is your best friend. Good God. We're like, because we were so on the edge of our seats. I just want to remember that, though, because we were so unsettled of where our our responsibilities were as audience members. Because really, it does make you uncomfortable and questioning everybody's motive. Like what you pointed out, Emerald is very Hitchcock. At some point in the Puerto Rico watch, that she was not the daughter of her parents, and those are actually Nina's parents. I know. We got crazy. We inceptioned (laughs) that entire viewing experience. It was too much sun and too much rum. That's where we were. So... (laughs) And then Molly Shannon really confused us when she showed up. We're like, wait, is she the mother? Is she her mother? We were we missed a detail yes. at the so, beginning. So the second rewatch was... Blame the rom. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so apparent the entire time. I'm like, oh my God, what's wrong with us? Oh, Jesus. So um, so the Uber plan with, with Carrie, um, we just see her knocking off these names in her little black book she's meeting with Bo, and the first time that i saw him coming to the coffee shop and they're having this moment and the date i did have a suspicion the first time that we saw this even though we were creating all these crazy theories (laughs) i did have a suspicion that he was involved with nina's death somehow I even thought at one point, I'm like, he seems so nice and sweet and adorable. Could he have done this to Nina? And this is a long game. And he like waltzed into her trap. Like is, is her working at the coffee shop a long game? I really thought this. Yeah, I remember we had all these weird, (laughs) I remember this. I remember this. But we were not, not wrong because he was complicit with it. He's like the guys in The Accused. With Jodie Foster, the guys who watched, right? <laughs> That's He's like, true. To me, when it, it's so weird when I when that scene comes with the video, I always think, oh, it's like this. It's the scene from The Accused. That's what I see in my head. I don't know mm. why. Even though you don't see it, you hear it. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So the name Almond Monroe triggers in her the the larger revenge, the Kill Bill revenge, mm-hmm. the Quentin Tarantino path. Where all of a sudden she starts looking on social media and she sees that the guy is getting married mm-hmm. and then she finds um, Madison, who's Alison Brie. Yeah. Which remember when we first, I mean, again, the drunken rum. I thought she was the woman that Almonro was marrying and I was really confused. No, for like and we were minutes. like, no, 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 no. <laughs> she was one of those dumb basic sorority bitches that was at that party. And she's complicit. She was totally a witness to this. And and this is a commentary on women that see something and don't say anything, even though they know it could happen to them. That first scene, the number one in the in the new Kill Bill list, because um, mm-hmm. she does a separate list for these big Han shows or these big revenges that she's going to be doing that are directly associated with Nina's death. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that I noticed, so she uh, calls... Madison, aka Alison Brie, to meet together for for lunch at a hotel mm-hmm. restaurant. Right, and it's that first scene where she orders a bottle of champagne and uh, a can of ginger ale, fills up the champagne for Alison and fills her with ginger ale because she's not getting drunk. She's gonna make yeah, it's bait. Alison Brie, yeah, drink everything. So Alison Brie drank the whole bottle of champagne and now is finishing her last glass of wine. And you you notice. Um, Carrie 
pours herself one glass of red wine and doesn't doesn't drink at all. Yeah, yeah, she doesn't. She's the drinking action. water like, the whole time. Yeah, which gee. <laughs> and Alison Brie drank a bottle. She's like us. She drank a <laughs> bottle of champagne and two bottles of wine all by herself in front of Carrie. Well, Morgan. I was gonna Amazing. say, can you imagine if somebody was trying to like pull that trick on you? Because I know for you, especially like both you and I, but I think that you could outdrink me actually, which is not a feat easily to be had <laughs> but, I don't, really yes i think you can actually i think because i think you can like just keep going you're like oh yeah i'm gonna like work in the morning and i'm gonna do this like you have all these hopes and dreams and plans and you actually do them after you drink like three bottles <laughs> but i was just thinking i was thinking the entire time of what if somebody was setting g up and be like here have this whole bottle wait here have two you would be so fine. You would be a-okay. There would be no mishappenings, no missed memories. You'd be like, oh, yeah, we were dancing to music videos at the end of the night. We were good. <laughs> Your tolerance is that high. <laughs> this shit would not work on you. <laughs> I'll be like, oh, yeah, give me another one. I know. You're like, you're taking me out for, for some drinks? Cool. <laughs> and I remember when Allison goes, oh, yeah, yeah, can you get me another one? Can you get me another bottle? I'm like, yeah, that would be me. That's why I'm in honor of Allison Bree's character. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but- oh, well, I was going to say, I know a lot of viewers, um, based on a few blogs, a few reviews, there were a lot of viewers that were bothered from the get-go that Nina was never present, that Carrie is telling Nina's story. But mm-hmm. you only see the the picture when she you never see what she looked like. Yeah, actually. and to me, I feel like this is my favorite kind of storytelling device. I love when you get to envision. It's like a Blair Witch kind of thing. You envision who this person is, and you can look at my floor to know the reference that Emerald is making. Well, this is a podcast. They're not going to see that. Oh, sorry, but no, but you you can look at my floor. <laughs> Not the audience, <laughs> you through the Zoom. Guillermo has a black and white zigzag carpet from Twin Peaks, my friends. Exactly. <laughs> so that is that is your visual so, description. Emerald, uh, <laughs> uh, entire Nina thing is based on Laura Palmer, including the hearts, the broken, the half. Um, mm-hmm. Say, the say best that. friends necklaces that have like, yes yeah. that have like a half a heart those are a reference to Twin Peaks remember like mm-hmm. um, Laura Palmer had half a heart necklace and the whole but thing also eighties girls everywhere I mean I had a best friend necklace with one of my friends in Georgia when I was a kid I had like one or two which is also a heart with the yeah it doesn't have your name on it like that's very special but it says best on one side and friends on the other like it was a very eighties fun thing to show your loyal and your loyalty and your commitment to your best friend in fifth grade that you will never remember but, <laughs> when you're an but adult. Here, here's the interesting thing of what she's doing with that. So by never showing, so I, I did read a little bit about this. So in, in Twin Peaks, you never really, in the original series, before Firewalk With Me, you only know Lara Palmer through her prom picture mm-hmm. or her home, homecoming picture. Was it mm-hmm. a prom? No, her homecoming picture. So, and it's this beautiful, idyllic perfect teenage girl and the whole thing is that you find out that she had all these dark things that drug habit and was doing like her her entire backstory is like a very complex well but that that is that to me that is so my point is that emerald chose not to show to to show nina the way they they show laura palmer because it would be objectifying her as a 
her image. So because Laura Palmer, the whole point is that she's being objectified as this like beautiful blonde teenager that everyone's was obsessed with. Emerald decides not to show that. She only shows her picture of her as a little girl, which is the picture that she has. Because the whole you point know, is that yeah. that Nina was not a dark person. Is she was an innocent person. So it's not she was not she didn't want it because you know Laura Palmer has that dark side as a teenager. Well, no, and I totally um, dig this reference. I, it is to show the innocence of victims because we're in a very victim blaming culture, and hence Alison Bree's entire performance of exactly and her exactly. character of just victim. Blaming. Oh, you know, like, like you she got was fucked too drunk, up. She blacked this out, da, 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 da. character assassination, and so did, did that person deserve that? It's like the um, have you seen this documentary on Netflix? Um, there's also an article about it. It's a really famous murder case. It's like Kitty Genovese. I think that's how you say her name. I'm trying to be pretentious. But it was like this one murder that happened in New York where they counted all these people saw it. It was like more than 30 people in an apartment building saw it happen in the courtyard. Like this girl looked like young Madonna. She was like very Italian. She was a lesbian. She was like doing her thing. And she was brutally murdered. And the murder happened over the course of 30 minutes. And um, she was screaming for people to help. And all these lights were going on. People saw it. And nobody called the police because they did not want to be involved. They did not want to. Oh, wow. Yeah. The whole reason why I said this is because in the Kitty case, um, one witness was saying, well, what was she doing out that late at night? And she was a bar manager. She was like a bar manager trying to make her own in New York City and everything. And they're like, well, those kind of characters out at 2 a.m., what do you expect? All these people had all these judgments. Everybody makes excuses for people that are wealthy or in high esteem of society. And then they throw it on the victim of like, well, maybe she deserved it. People are trying to justify the actions. And it's like, nope, sometimes people are just monsters. And it's, it's a really hard thing to wrap your head around. And this happened. So I, I really respect that Nina is not present. I respect the storytelling that goes with Carrie Mulligan's character of she's grieving in her own way and she can't get past it. And some people want to shake her and be like, move on, do this, do that. But she has dedicated her entire life to this mission. And also, so by not having the image of Nina, again, is the movie, you cannot pass a judgment of what she looked like. Because yeah. that's the whole point of objectification of women. It's all about looks and all this stuff. And that's mm-hmm. what the movie is pointing out. So if you ever showed her, Emerald would take away the power of of Nina's story because right. you immediately would have a judgment about her looks, which right. is what our society does with yep. women. Absolutely. So this is why there is no Laura Palmer picture. Mm-hmm. Instead, she just has it's a picture of an innocent little girl, yeah. which is an which ingenious. Is genius. Yeah. Genius, genius move. So, Allison um, Brie, like, let's get to this scene. So, what you were pointing out that Allison is drinking herself silly and talking about the good old days, and that unbeknownst to her, Carrie has hired a hitman of sorts. She's hired a guy that we, as the audience, we believe that he's going to take her up to the hotel and rape her. Like, it gets really dark, but this is where your mind goes. The guy does not mm-hmm. ultimately rape her, he puts her in bed. But it is the epitome of, hey, I'm going to put you in my friend's situation, in my friend's shoes, and you're not so judgy now, are you, bitch? So exactly. Allison Brie gives a lot of panicked voicemails and how Nina was crying for help and Carrie was telling people everything. She ignores it. 
She ignores it, which we as an audience member were like, wow, that's kind of cruel and fucked up. But it's also what comes to bite her back. It is true. So when everything is done, when she's actually moved on Mm -hmm. from the grief and her mission, it is Alison Brie who shows up at her doorstep later in the movie, who sets up the fourth act or the third act of the movie. So if it wasn't, it's like, but it's, 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 so complex because it's like okay so it is the one thing that she did that went too far because she's attacking another woman to teach her a lesson about supporting uh, believing and supporting women right so you understand why she's doing it but because she never resolves it it comes to back and that and it is allison who comes back with the video which mm-hmm. sets up the, the, the final the, the twist of the, the 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 final twist and then so the final act very intentional so in a way, it's, it's you reap what you sow, and it brings back kind of like the. And we'll get to that scene where she shows up again. It's almost like she brings back the drug of what she was doing, or if we, we call what she was doing like a kind of addiction. Mm-hmm. She was addicted to avenging Nina, mm-hmm. and so by bringing the, the 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 cell phone, it's like I'm bringing you back to that other place, and it's like, of course, she takes it and she watches it. Um, but we'll get there. First, we have to talk about Connie Britton. Evil Connie. I loved that, you know, as as Carrie's knocking these names off of her little black book, um, anybody that had anything to do with Nina's rape and ultimate suicide, um, that Connie Britton is the dean of the college. I like that, that it was cast as a woman and as a mother at that. I read that Emerald... They shot this entire movie in L.A. I didn't know. Did you know this? No, the entire I did movie not was shot in, in L.A. The reason she shot in L.A. because she wanted all these people in the movie. And this movie was shot in 20 something, 23 days, I think. Wow. And she went to L.A. so all these people could do their scenes quickly. Because hmm. she couldn't pay them very much. And it, they were very short scenes. And they were very significant. But she wanted all these specific Connie Britton. She mm-hmm. wanted Alison uh, Brie. Mm-hmm. Um Adam Brody, Max Greenfield, and they all have these like very important. Everyone has a key role. No, they're all purposeful and like very. Was, there's no ve- filler in this movie. Yes, but it was it was much easier to lure them to being into the movie if the movie was shot in LA where they could go shoot their scenes and go back home. So she kind of um, she does a, a trap for Connie Britton's daughter. Mm-hmm. And says that, like, this boy band is going to be at a diner. She's the makeup artist as a ploy to blackmail and trap Connie. It's a one step up from what she does to Alison Brie because now she's kind of kidnapping these teenage girl who's clearly in high school and taking her somewhere. So, again, when she speaks to Connie... She tells her a lie, right? She's like, oh, I took her to the room where Nina was raped. And she's like there with the guys. And she da-da-da. puts so Connie in the feel... theoretical position of like, okay, you might think that you have a handle on this with your age and wisdom and what you know about men. But um, your young, innocent, unsuspecting daughter is waiting for her favorite boy band to show up. But all these guys are going to show up. What do you think is going to happen? You know? Real, and, uh, and, and and she confesses. She's like, "Look how easy that was." When it when it, it when it happens to you, as Lady Gaga and Diane Warren tells us um, from that, it's a documentary about campus rape, right? Mm-hmm. So um, again, until it is your daughter, or until it is you in that situation in terms of Alison Brie, you won't really understand. 
And so she's, in a way, everything that she's doing is making people realize the society that they're a part of and that the, the thing that they're conspiring with works against their own best interests. Mm-hmm. Right? So the first, the one and two, which are Allison and Connie, are these, again, at first she was doing it with the men to mm-hmm. th- let them realize that they're, you know, taking advantage of women who don't want to be, because they do, who they wouldn't really be doing that with if they were sober. The mm-hmm. idea of using alcohol to mm-hmm. kind of rape women. And then she's taking the women and seeing you're co-conspirators in a society that doesn't have your best interest. Yes. So then... All of that has happened. We're all not even halfway through the movie. <laughs> this is the, 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 the biggest twist in this movie. And these are all fun, revengey. You know, she's serving the dish cold. But we see it's escalating. We're a little... And it's escalating. And it's escalating. It's all very well done. And then there's the scene with Alfred Molina. Yes. <gasps> I wanted to ask you questions Can about... Can we talk yes. about Alfred Molina? I was the wanted... only other Brit in the movie. He's right. the only other British actor in the movie. And they were co-stars in An Education, oh. which is our other Oscar-nominated role. I really love that. Um, so Alfred Molina is uncredited in this movie. I'm not entirely sure why, but hmm. he's not credited. He decided to do it secretly. Hmm. Um, and he is the midpoint of the movie. He is, he serves, is the movie, it's when the movie turns. So Alfred Molina is the lawyer who represented the. Al Monroe. Yes, the Al Monroe who Al raped Monroe. Nina and got off scot free. So he is held accountable. We always think about. The, the moral clauses of lawyers and certain high-profile cases of, like, uh, isn't it obvious? And you talk to this murderer every day. Like, you know, celebrity cases. I'm not going to name any off the bat. You can, you can think of your favorite crime story and think of just, like, their famous attorney and go, wow, they, they really sleep at night knowing that this person brutally murdered a person. So, um, of course, Carrie's going to hold this person accountable. And then we as an audience, we are very surprised that he has been living in his own private hell. He has a moral compass. And he actually can't sleep. And he actually, I love the setup that he's actually, he has this huge house and he's sleeping in his very uncomfortable couch. Did you see the pillow? They don't even talk about it. That you know that he's not sleeping in his bedroom. He's trying he's to find any avenue couch. where to sleep. He's anybody who has sleep disorders. You're just trying to find some kind of place. And even the way he he comes towards Carrie, the way that scene is blocked and she's so threatened for a second, but then realizes that she's not to be like the whole scene was so brilliant. He's so desperate. It's almost like he wants someone to kill him because he can't handle the guilt. Mm -hmm. And and so I don't know. I thought the scene that's a very hard scene to pull off as a director, because it's not a very long scene, but it's a very potent scene. And she even has a hitman outside of the house to be like, fuck this guy. He got this guy off, got him, like, my friend is dead because this guy helped. She was ready to off him, and she made this decision in the house of like, you know what? No, he's actually telling the truth. He's remorseful. But but it's also brilliantly set up in the Oscar-winning screenplay 
because he remembers her name. Yes. And you've been setting up this whole idea that no one, everyone wants to forget this ever happened. Exactly. Like Allison is like, oh, yeah, that we were so young. I don't remember anything. And then the other guy doesn't remember her name at the beginning. And so then this guy remembers everything and he feels terrible about everything. Yeah. And so that that's all she needed. Here's the interesting thing. Um, Carrie Mulligan's character, Cassie, doesn't trust any men in the movie. Or pretty much anyone, including her parents. The only person that she earns her trust is Alfred Molina's character because she trusts him at the end of the movie with bringing the guy to justice. She's who she sends the video to. Mm-hmm. So because of Alfred Molina's honesty or moment or, or uh, um, remorse, deep remorse and admission of remorse and admission of guilt, becomes the only person that she trusts and i think that was so powerful yeah it made the character um, do a little not even change. like the only man the only person in the entire fucking right, movie that she right. trusts mm-hmm. the lawyer of the rapist are you drinking something different is, wait are you drinking something oh yeah different? i have switched the vanderpump sangria baby <laughs> boom 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 you can't just sit there and drink something like you went from champagne flute to something on the rocks i'm like what's going on over there okay i'm a pop um <laughs> so and I, I to me that is one of the most shocking moments in the film and it really turns the movie around because then after that carrie kind of decides to let go of her revenge and decides to live her life because she's she got what she wanted she gives it a go she really she tries her best a go. yeah so she that's all the character needed so the character gets what they need at the middle of the movie which usually the whole point, you know, the screenplay is built on like what a character wants and what a character needs. She wants and, revenge. And she, got she it. wants to bring these yeah. people to justice. She needed someone to show remorse and admit guilt about the situation. Mm-hmm. And once she gets that, she's done. And she throws the fucking little notebook away. She closes. She, she lets she, it go. Uh, she and she, Bo Burnham go dance to Paris Hilton. To Paris Hilton. <laughs> Stars which are blind. Is, which is for which is foreshadowing yeah because what wasn't paris hilton the first sex tape yeah it's fun to start the girls are crazy and the stars are blind blind. it's pretty (laughs) it's a really good song reggae pop situation and she got ridiculed by that sex tape and it was a a, that defined her the sex tape Um, defined her and she became a pop culture icon and also ridiculed 24 7 so she had opportunities that came out of it and also a lot of embarrassment and shame. I just thought that song, I remember when it first came out, and it's a great sequence when they're in the in The, the bodega, they're there, the, they're singing. You're like, she's going to let go of this. She's going to move out. She's going to resume her life. Like she, Maybe she got the answers that she needed, which, as we all know, with grieving, there really is no closure. You think there's closure, but there's not. You you just kind of learn to live with things. And we think that our girl Cassie is going to be okay. Right after Connie, she visits Connie Britton and does the whole thing with the daughter. Before Alfred Molina, there's this very interesting sequence where Carrie Mulligan is in her car on a stop sign or something or an intersection. Oh, that's and she's, right. And she goes crazy on this guy on a truck next to starts harassing her because she's not moving and she's like i don't know she's like in has her head on her on the 
on the, the steering wheel, wheel. Yeah. the steering wheel and we don't know if she's just like thinking about I, I don't know it's a very strange scene and then they play this like classical music that I originally thought was the soundtrack to Vertigo but it's not it's a Richard Wagner classic thing that sounds very similar to the soundtrack to Vertigo mm-hmm. it felt like a really oddly played scene and I hmm. didn't really understood what it meant why is she like at the steering wheel why is she like I don't think I mean, it's an oddly placed scene I'll tell you why okay, because because I think this is lending more to the grief conversation of things where you think you have a handle on shit so here Cassie slash Carrie Mulligan she has this grand scheme of things she's holding people accountable she's doing all these activities to keep her busy to to reach her goal she wants to avenge her friend's rape and suicide and she's hoping by proxy she will feel better about herself she will feel better about humanity and there are those moments in grief where it just comes so unexpectedly comes completely out of fucking nowhere you could be shopping and getting your shit at trader joe's i'll share a personal story when i was dealing with grief like fresh off my mom's death i was boarding a plane and i feel like i'm a pretty patient person i feel like (laughs) i adhere to the rules of society for the most part and I have my mom's ashes with me and I put them in this like 60s retro hat box that she had at her place. So I had this carry on. I had some other bag. I had some other shit. And so this flight attendant in Florida, like I had a layover in Hollywood, Florida, like in this flight attendant was like, ma'am, ma'am, you can't board with all those carry ons. You have to pay extra. Like she was like on my shit. For all these things. And I, in like, I, I, outside of my body, I feel like I was Kristen Wiig. Because <laughs> I, like, <laughs> let loose at this chick. I'm just like, my mom's in here! <laughs> How dare you tell me I have to pay for the carry-on on my mom's fucking body! Like, I... <laughs> I let loose and I became unhinged and therefore Carrie Mulligan had a moment. She had to collect herself. She had to process her fucking grief for a second and some dude, another fucking man was yelling at her about something and she's like, fuck this noise. (laughs) So I I applaud that. She went to town on his. She went Beyonce's lemonade, everybody. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Okay, okay, I get it. I get it now. (laughs) So she had a moment, and I think then this also leads to the Molly Shannon scene, which comes a few scenes after that. This scene does not get enough love. People forget that Molly Shannon's in this movie. The scene, what's so fascinating about it? She's the mother of Nina, Mm -hmm. and she's. It seems like. It's. I think it's seven years since Nina died. The mom is definitely in a better place with her grief. She's moved on. So, she doesn't have the so vengeful fantasies, on. but she's also older, uh, a different relationship. Like there are so many different factors involved, you know. But but it's but she's there to point the fact that that this is um, ruling Carrie's life. It's an exactly. obsession. It's an it's addiction. Been, it's been a very 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 long time. Yes, and it's time to move on. Time and it's to been move almost on. Almost a decade. And so did you as an audience member? I mean, I, I kind of felt this whenever Molly was like, Molly's giving her permission to move on. 
And I actually thought she's dating Bo Burnham, this, this, and this. Maybe she's going to let it go. I actually had that hope, that little optimistic and then and then, she, and then she does, right? So that, I think but the next sequence is... Did you feel that way? Did you think, oh, no, she's not going to let this shit go? Or did you no, think- I really believed it. I, oh, here's the part you do believe. The movie, this is really hard to pull off in a movie. Mm-hmm. You believe the false ending, which is what they call the false ending, which right. is towards the end of the second act, where the person actually achieved their goal mm-hmm. and is moving on, but the movie's not done yet. Mm-hmm. So you have to do this. This is a timing thing. For, for this to work, you actually, internal your internal clock as a viewer has to believe that the movie's almost over. Mm-hmm. Like you so think they're wrapping this, up loose ends, yeah. Yeah. So in order for you to actually believe it, and I looked I actually paused the movie because I remember I believed it the first time, and this movie is two hours long, and this is very close to hour and a half. So hour and a half, hour one thirty-five. So you're like, okay, this could be the end of the movie. Right. This is right. when a movie typically ends. Okay. So you believe the fact that the Alfred Molina moment brought her resolution is mm-hmm. she got what she needed, mm-hmm. and so she can move on. And so you really believe that this movie is now going to focus on its ending, which is about Carrie Mulligan moving away from her trauma, and this is about a woman overcoming grief and trauma, and so. And then you see her going to Bo. And then they have that like sequence in bed where he's like, I love you. I'm falling in love with you. And he's so cute. He's like, I'm falling in love with She says, I'm falling in love with you too. She brings him over to meet the parents. And it's all funny. And cute. the parents are so relieved. Um, Jennifer Coolidge and Clancy Brown. They're, they're so relieved to see their daughter being herself and actually having a a hopeful future towards happiness. Like everybody's absolved, but she's not at the end. Like, I think she gave it a go and she just she gave it not. a go. And, and I think, but the, the feat that Emerald pulled off is that we believe it. Yeah. Usually we're, we're viewers of many movies and we know this is not resolved. Is it the psychological carry yeah. ending? Yeah. It's like, and for some reason, I did fall for it mm. at well, a certain moment. But is it because we wish um, that? We're just like, girl, come on. Yeah, but the, we're, the, we're, the world we're is... cynical audiences yeah. nowadays. We are True. very cynical audiences. We know plots. We know shit. And I think it's a testament to the editing of the movie. The when the timing great. of everything happens. Great editing. This is why it's very important. I got nominated for editing. It's also the directing that you do believe that this is the ending of the movie. And to me, that's one of the best things that the movie pulls off because then when Alison Brie shows up, and that's technically the beginning of the third act. So, so Carrie um, Mulligan has moved out from the home. She's moving on with her life. She has this adorable pink living room, which I personally love. And Alison sits down. She's so like suburban housewife and looks around like, oh, this is, these are weird decorations. And then Jack and I were like, this is the Madonna Inn. This is fabulous. <laughs> I love the picture of the German shepherd. Everything's pink and gold. Send me here. <laughs> this is so great. Alison Brie plops down. The Blackberry. It's a Blackberry phone. Alison Brie quickly throws away the line that she's kept all of her phones to keep the pictures. And that's why she still has the video. I'm like, bitch, don't, you know, don't you know about the cloud? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> how no, many How is... many old phones do you have? I have one. How many old phones do you I have? I have 
I have a couple. I mean, I have, they're like in a box somewhere, but it's because of the pictures. That because these phones Stop don't. It. They're like pre iPhone. Huh. Like pictures when I was living in Chicago, I had this flip phone. Yeah. And so I mean, I've transferred the pictures out of there, but like I still have the flip phone. It probably doesn't work. Oh, interesting. So, um, I did have a BlackBerry, and it's somewhere. But I, I think is that idea was like you know. She went through the transition from flip phones, Blackberries into iPhones and smartphones. So you can't transfer those photos. So you keep the phone. No, I have my own version of that. I had like an elf camera that I kept for forever. Like what Lindsay Lohan uses in her rumors video. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh there there's my a God. digital card in there. So I kept um I have no idea where it is. Anyways, we have our own weird reasons for storing things. So fine, I don't judge your character. No, but she had it, so it was like, and she pulls out the the BlackBerry, and one thing I didn't notice the first time is that she plays the video, and she recognizes Bo Berman's, I didn't remember that from the first viewing, did you? You hear Bo Berman's voice. Oh, yes. No, no, no. Right away. No, no, I got that. It's sound design kind of way. I got that from the first shrunken Puerto Rico time, and then the second rewatching. I did get that. I just didn't understand if her falling in love with him the first time, I thought when he entered the coffee shop, I really thought that she recognized him. You already knew that. Yeah. Right? And then no, she, no, I, yeah. This I time thought, we find out that she doesn't. She yeah. Did. So it broke her heart. She views yeah. this footage and it breaks her heart. He is an accomplice. He is a bystander of this rape that ultimately ruined her best friend's life. So he has to be held accountable. This nice guy. So everything she thought, everything she hoped for, of like, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this. Going to turn my shit around. Done within five to ten seconds. She just goes back to being like, you know what? I need to get my point across. So she basically... I think this is where the movie is a little bit like Vertigo. So the last act is like a repeat of the entire movie. She goes back to her old ways immediately. The, the, the viewing of the tape triggers her revenge. It brings her back to the beginning of her revenge to start doing the same thing that she was doing before, mm-hmm. which is what's now comfortable to her, mm-hmm. the grief and the revenge. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like the third act is a repeat of the entire movie and fast forward. Oh, which is what Vertigo does. Okay. Since what's interesting is that Vertigo is a movie about the opposite. It's about the guy who can't see beyond his own delusional perception of women, and it's a rape. It's the movie about the rapist, right? And he he kills and rapes one woman, and then kills and rapes the same woman again. The actress who was playing the other woman. So he repeats the rape twice, uh, the metaphorical rape. Right in the Hitchcock times, so this movie is the reverse. It's the person avenging the rapist who can't get over her grief and her vengeance. So then, at the end, this is why I thought that was a reference to Vertigo. That one scene, but maybe it's not. Um, but anyway, it no, starts it up again. So then, that is a brilliant observation. The way Vertigo goes down in the third act is that the guy repeats all of it. And commits the crime again. Again. But this yeah. time she gets killed for real because that was there's the a different uh, There's a different outcome to this. Like Instead of killing by proxy, it's killing directly. But killing directly. But let's so, go to the setup of that. So after she, she goes and she holds Bo Burnham Bo Burnham accountable. accountable. She plays the video for him and he tries to like say, oh, what is that? Da-da-da. And then like, here's his voice. 
So I realized I realized the use of the sound mm-hmm. for the hearing of his voice, and then mm-hmm. she wants to know the cabin, which we saw, and it's this is immediately the cabin an in Eli the Roth movie. <laughs> That cabin got set up and that what a friender, which is the Facebook of the movie. Friendster meets Facebook, yeah. Yes. The friender page. And we know this is all gonna end up in a cabin in the woods. <laughs> and so we get that amazing Britney Spears sequence so when she this arrives. Was my favorite moment in the entire movie. The first time you and I were just like grasping each other's arms. <laughs> just like what the fuck's happening the second time even more chilling that string quartet version of toxic and they play it out you just, you don't get a little sampling they play very heavily into this and you get this beautiful creepy wide shot of her approach of the cabin you feel that she is going to meet her demise it's either she is David versus Goliath, or she's meeting her maker, honestly. That audio cue was so stirring to me. She, I didn't notice this the first thing. She throws away the license plate of her car. She switches she, out yeah, her shoes. Yeah, she throws it to the woods. She throws her phone into the trunk. Yeah. So um, Jim and I had a conversation. I, was, I didn't notice that part. I was like, okay, so she clearly doesn't want to be found, right? Why would she throw away the license plate? And Jim's point is like, no, this is more incriminating evidence for them. Of course. Yes, that's what I thought. She threw the license plate into the woods to be like, yeah, it's incriminating evidence. And also the shoes, because every woman who wears heels anywhere, we always have a backup pair of flip flops. And we get to our (laughs) destination and then we put on those fucking heels. (laughs) That's what happens. So that was that. But she did throw the license plate into the woods in case things went sour, which she was predicting they would. Exactly. So here's an interesting, because I, interestingly enough, we know that she's going to the lion's den. Mm-hmm. We've, we've seen the thesis throughout the whole movie about how horrible men can be with women under the circumstances. But I, I still did not see that ending coming. I never did. Well, the second time you watch it, but I, I, you really don't think this movie's going to turn the way it turns. You want her to succeed. In of her course, revenge, she's the protagonist. Right? So, We're rooting for her to. But it's, you kind of ask yourself this question as an audience member. You're like, what do you want her to do? You want him. You want her to confront the rapist. You want her to shout from the rooftops, "This wrong needs to be righted." But will she get it? our bleak, dismal society and jaded community is just like, no, she's never going to get that. But what do we want? What do we want to happen when she approaches that cabin? So we see her, of course, she walks in there. She like, there's this oral fixation sequence with her mouth and the bubble gum and the like, all the tongues of the guys swallowing the alcohol that's basically going to put them to sleep. The music and the aesthetics are like each of their own to design this movie of like the Lolita candy color pop innocence um, fetish that aspires that it's been very popular amongst a lot of straight men that um, she's like playing, she's baiting these men with that. And it's like that fun, cheeky surface thing that has absolutely no depth. But as we see her, like her objective has layers and layers and layers and layers. 
And also the fact that she was supposed to be a doctor and she's playing this like stripper nurse. Stripper nurse, exactly. Right? And I that irony is amazing, right? So, but the reason we think the ending might not might go her way is because of Alfred Molina. Because I was like, what is she really seeking? Hmm. She's going there, guns a blazing, exacting her revenge. But what she's really hoping is that this guy, Alfred Molina, pulls on Alfred Molina and ex- admits guilt mm-hmm. and confesses. That's what she wants. She actually tells him that when she has him chained up up there. She's giving yes. him a shot to be like, I am a shitty person and I did this. I am accountable. That's the entire And she would forgive theme. him if he did that. If he would admit to it, if he would... She said, tell me what you did to Nina. She keeps saying that. If he actually sat there and admitted guilt and showed remorse, she would forgive him and walk away. Because we've seen it already with Alfred Molina. That's why the twist is so powerful. Because we know the good ending could happen. Because we've seen it. So Carrie shows up as a candy stripper named Nina. And they take her her, upstairs. she's... And she's wearing the Laura Palmer half of a heart necklace of Nina, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And she takes Al Monroe upstairs, ties him to the bed, and decides that she's going to carve Nina's name onto his chest, right? Mm. Pulls out the... All over his body is what I got. And she's like, Um, I've been in med school. I can do this after all. And he realizes who she is. And again, this goes back to the Alfred Molina scene because Alfred Molina remembered Nina's name and that was very important to Carrie and her mm-hmm. twist towards moving away from the revenge. So she's trying to, to instill upon Al Monroe. It's kind of based on her conversation with Alfred Molina. So as an audience, we are seeing Nina get her ultimate revenge, right? Mm-hmm. We've seen that with Alfred Molina, she got what she needed. In this movie, they usually the character gets what they need at the end of the movie when they don't get what they want because what they want is not what they need. This is reverse. She got what she needed at halfway the midpoint, through the movie. At the midpoint, for sure. And now so, we as an audience, we're like, you exact revenge on this motherfucker. We want this, which is why this third exactly. act is very divisive amongst audiences. So she goes up there and it's revealed, you know, she's doing like her sexy talk with this guy and he realizes who she is. And she even makes Mm -hmm. comments of like, oh, I didn't even think I was that fuckable then. And he he admits like he says the same things that Alfred has said to her of like, oh, yeah, Nina, like he has a memory clear as day about this incident. But she does, he doesn't mean it, though. Exactly. He's just, try, he's just trying to get himself out of the situation. Well, he's trying to get himself out of the situation and just reporting facts. It has no emotional weight to him at all. The only emotional response there is about that is him saying, oh, this is dark, blah, 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 blah. Like, he even suspects one of his boys getting a stripper saying that she's Nina. Like, he immediately knows the reference. Oh, so he know he knows he admits the guilt, mm-hmm. but he doesn't show but, the remorse. Exactly. Yeah, say he admits the guilt, but he doesn't show the remorse. Mm-hmm. Um, but the part that I find shocking is when he lo- he he's able to loosen himself up from one of the handcuffs and attacks her, 
And so we actually see, so the entire movie, there's been no violence on screen. There's been um, the suggestion of violence, but it's all been lessons. So all Carrie has been doing, she looks like um, she's presented as a kind of serial killer, but all she's doing is teaching people lessons about how they see things. I think that the common trope is you only get an assessment of the facts and you get what this person means to you. You, you, your first hand judgment comes from visual aid and doing mm-hmm. your own research. When, when it comes to a person doing a, atrocious things to another, that's a really tricky land. You have to pick a pony. You got to believe somebody versus the other. And you really try to be fair about it. But, um, yeah, that's why, like, past activity, whether you were a good student or a bad student or you dress suggestively or you don't, like, all those things don't really matter. They're not factors. So that's why, like, hearsay is a very hard thing. You don't want to victim blame and then you don't want to wrongly accuse. But in this case, the sh- one of the, sh- the biggest shocks in the movie is that there's actually physical evidence. There's a video. Yes. And even with the video, yes. people did did what they did. That's right? true. That's very true. So when this violence comes, and I know that Emerald um, had, did this research about how long does it take to when you put a pillow on a person, yeah, like how long does it take? Minutes, two and a half minutes. Two and, and a half that's minutes. The length of the to shot. Choke somebody out. <laughs> so this movie was supposed to have come out in April of 2020 in theaters before, mm-hmm. when the pandemic hit. I remember that we all remember the trailers. This movie is a year delayed. So. Oh, not a year. Like, when did it come out? I guess January. But it was supposed to come out a year ago. Mm-hmm. How insane is it that Emerald Fresnel designed this movie before the George Floyd death in that. the summer? When you see this scene, it has triple impact. I do want to talk about the the tone of the movie shifting after that. All of a sudden... We don't have Nina's story. We don't have Cassie's story. Both of these women are gone. So we just have these two hot, but <laughs> two two just male buffoons running about. It becomes a trope. Like the tone immediately changes. And you kind of think like, oh, okay, we're in a different movie now. Like, again, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. genre submersion. Um, so it's like it's, it's, it's a comedic scene. From like a really, like it felt like an eighties movie, right. like a weekend at Bernie's exactly. or something. Yeah, it's like where it just, is? But in poor, in horrible. Where's poor Andrew taste. McCarthy in this? <laughs> yes, it was an Andrew McCarthy. It was mannequin. <laughs> Carrie Mulligan is the mannequin. Kim, Kim Cattrall, where are you? Also British, and, but in this horrible, twisted way. So I, again, Emerald knows her eighties American movies. Um. And so we're like, it's like a hangover from hell. Our head hurts. We're still, th- I was like still thinking she was going to wake up. I like did too. Okay. Them. So when you and I watched I this, like, we're just like, nope, she's going to wake up. She's going to wake up, which is a beautiful bookend to the beginning of the movie where we're unsure of her walking down the street after meeting Adam Brody. I thought that she had fucking killed Adam Brody or like, fucked him oh, up in that. such a way with a, with a jelly donut. Because, like, they, they lead you to misbelieve. And it was a beautiful ending of, like, well, no, she's not really dead. Like, no, 
She's she's going to get her revenge. So then we get the burning scene, which actually is a special effect of the fire in the mountains. That we get the hand with the multicolored oh, with her candy nails, yeah, with her candy nails, and there is Max Greenfield and Al Monroe, mm-hmm. and they're getting away with murder, and you're like still in disbelief, right? And so. They burn her body, and you're, and you're like, oh, my God, she really got burned. She's really dead. It's over. She's not going to, like, all of a sudden come back. Like I, I kept thinking done. of the evil dead. I was like, this, this is going to become a zombie movie. <laughs> she's going to wake out of that funeral pyre. You were going to throw that into another genre. You're like, no. <laughs> she's like, hey, what? Cabin in the woods. Cabin in the woods. <laughs> evil dead is referenced. Because, because is referenced. here we go of this entire time after everything that we as an audience has experienced. We think that she's going to get her revenge. And we're like, this is not satisfying. This is not cathartic. But so here's, it's the most here's, realistic. <laughs> it's the, here's the thing. Here's the shocking thing. That was the end of the original screenplay. And it should have been. I would have been okay for me. I like how it ended, which we'll go into. But as it ended, it should have been. Her, it's a get out so thing. It's a get out dark. thing. They're like, this is too dark. But it's just like, like. Fucking get out of the realistic situation and get out is that the guy goes to jail and he's innocent. And for this, she would have died and the guys would have kept living their fucking good life. I thought that would have been a really honest ending, but it's too bleak. The original ending is exactly what you saw. She gets killed. She gets burned. The guy gets married. The movie's over. They get away with murder because that's how the world works. When they tested the movie or when they showed it, it was like, this is so incredibly frustrating for the audience with the movie that you've made. That what do you want to live? So this is when they came up with the kind of alternate ending that you see, which is where she had sent the tape to Alfred Molina. She has a whole plan. They kinda, she going. had a backup plan. Yeah. She had a backup plan. Yeah. Um, that goes into effect and the scheduled messages and all of that. So she wrote that after the fact because we love this character so much that we cannot leaving the theater in that dark place is just too unbearable. And I, while I like, and I, we're going to talk about this because I'm writing a movie that we're going to talk about after this mm-hmm. that has a really dark ending and I have problems with it and I'm oh. having an Emerald Fennell problem. Okay. It is so dark that and I understand that I remember feeling, and you do feel that, and I think she reacted to people's feelings about the movie that are very real. You think she's going to wake up. You want her to win. You want her to be alive. And if you if the credits rolled, it is the most dark ending I could ever think of of a movie, hmm. if that was the ending of the movie, before hmm. they decided to add this other ending. So, But I also feel like it's the most accurate. <laughs> But then I you like also want the fantasy works. of justice, but you want the fantasy of justice. You want the catharsis. So therefore, that's when people label this as a revenge movie. And I'm like, no, it's kind of more of a grieving movie with a toss of revenge. Like, okay, a revenge movie to me is um, you, you have Keanu Reeves, Liam Neeson, Uma Thurman. Everybody mm-hmm. has a very steadfast goal and you're rooting for them to make it towards the end. And same for Carrie Mulligan. Like, she is that vengeful hero. But in this case scenario, 
The revenge doesn't work out. It doesn't. And we have to kind of live with that possibility of we're rooting, we're rooting, and she's getting her way. And then what if it just doesn't happen? I find that ending more thrilling. I think that it should have ended with the candy color nails and like the body burning. We still have hope. And we as an audience. And what, oh, I, mean, I are, think, I don't know if this is what she wanted, but wedding pictures. After that. Yeah. Like they get to the live happy there, ending is happy, for the rapist. Yeah. The happy ending is for the rapist. And there's this beautiful wedding. By the way, the actress who plays the bride mm-hmm. is Carrie Mulligan's stand in. <gasps> oh, I love that. I think that's kind of great. Oh, wow. I really yeah. like that. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh, you, you get a girl. Um, but. So let's talk about the, the, the new ending, I guess, the, mm-hmm. the, the ending that they decided to add on after the fact. I thought, because I understand the issue, like it's so dark, you want some hope for the audience. So Emerald had to come back in there and come up with a different, I mean, it, it was her choice. It, it, she was just set. You understand that people are left with this really horrible feeling Oh, I don't think it was her choice. I think it was a studio choice. (laughs) No, there is no studio. This is an independent film. It's a film nation film. They just they just sat down and talked about it. It was her decision. No, no, I looked this up. Okay, it was her decision. It's a film nation movie, which is very much like you pay for your movie and pray for the best. Um, So she had no. We all do when we make movies. It came out of an honest discussion about the fact that do you want your audience? It's so dark and so devastating that do you, can you, is there a way to give the audience something to be okay with? Which she married the two. She married the two. I mean, Cassie got her vengeance. The audience feels a little satisfied and it's sad that she died, but the realistic parameters of the situation she went to a bachelor party in the woods knowing what she was up against about these guys with documented behavior you know and but let's talk about that ending this hippy dippy wedding uh. that is like midsummer <laughs> like what is happening i, I just i i really i was i knew the fact that this was like an added ending I was like, okay, Emerald, figure it out. There's this like scheduled text that Bo Burnham is gonna get, and then like Alfred Molina gets the fucking blue BlackBerry video and figures it out because she trusted him to to bring everything to justice. The police shows up, and there's this this like really strange wedding. I was fascinated by the entire production design of the ending and the entire setup and this like weird hippy dippy people <laughs> I was like I was like of course you have to do this new NA you're gonna make it interesting <laughs> and you're gonna make another commentary about some sort of culture and I just thought it was great I just thought it was int- like yeah it's not this lavish wedding at a country club it's in the middle of the woods and it's super hippy dippy which makes it even more I don't know why. Well, yeah, because there's a facade <laughs> that happens, and you and I know about some of these people that they are very rich, and they're like, let's get married at this rustic place I mean, place I was expecting Catherine Keener and her get-out role to be officiating the Right. Wedding, it's, it's like the right? hip Democrats and get out. Like, sometimes yes. these people are not always your friends. <laughs> I don't know what they seem. So, okay, so, so I wanna, 
Oh, what were you? Oh, say? I want to finish on one note because this was connected to my viewing of the movie. Billie Eilish released her new music video today, today or yesterday, either today, last night at midnight or something. Have you watched this? No. It's the video equivalent of Promising Young Woman. So the video shows her. It's called Your Power, and it's like it's I. You, you should listen to the song. Well, it I plays saw Steve on Instagram where she like kind of turns to the camera and she does like her dead eye thing. And, you know, I'm just like, oh, OK, it's ironic. You're not happier than ever. OK, exactly. So. Um, so the video shows her in a mountain and she's blonde and she's singing about not losing your power, but then also abusing your power. And the idea that the, the male perpetrators abuse their power, hmm. but the victims need to have their power back. And actually represents the struggle of promising young woman. And so as she's singing, a snake, a huge fucking snake, crawls around her and fucking chokes her <gasps> by the oh, end of the video. Jesus. And it's very much the plot of promising young woman. So hmm. I was like, okay, happier than ever not, <laughs> Billie Eilish, but thank you for keeping the deep thoughts in our heads. So I thought it was it was very interesting because they called her my viewing of Promising Young Woman today. Oh. Wow. And I thought, oh, happier than ever. Oh, Billie Eilish is going to a happy place. And then I watched the video. I'm like, oh, well, no, she's going she's to a place. <laughs> she's going to a place. Wow. No, I. Yeah, so I she continues to that. shock us. Wow. She continues to shock us. <laughs> I actually really like that. I will watch that video tonight. That's really exciting. Yeah, I know. It's really cool. And I think it's it's to me, it reflects the mixture of lightness and humor and comedy that Emerald Brett well, brought to, me, to Promising Young Woman while reminding us of how fucked up Well, because that represents dealing. You're not going to be one or the other all the time. You're going to be, like, so deep. A lot of people, I mean, you could be so deep-rooted in your depression that you kind of change your personality and whatnot, but there are a lot of people that kind of, like, learn to live with the sadness and mm-hmm. they can function like uh, some people can function and go to work and other people want to stay in bed and deal with this thing. Some people get stuck in it. Some people are going to be like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm going to work through this. I'm going to distract myself. Like there are so many different ways of dealing with trauma. I really appreciate this movie because even though it was labeled as a vengeful tale, it is about grieving. It is about processing. It's about current events. Um, also about holding people accountable. It is a multi-layered, deep movie with a candy coating finish. It's like a, it's a pretzel Eminem. <laughs> <laughs> there is chocolate I and like candy that. coating and salt and a texturized finish. I'm into it. But um, and mustard and mustard. Is it? Do you have mustard with Eminem? Bitter M&Ms? mustard. <laughs> No, no, because the pretzel has mustard in New York. You put mustard on the salty pretzel. I don't know. I went there. I went there. I I love that. I love that. You're so funny to me. Um, Also, hear me out. Sequel for Promising Young Woman. Oh. At the end, I'm like, okay, the studio, some, some trite studio is thinking, oh, Promising Young Woman, Promising Young women we make it a group tale i'm like no no no, that's not uh, interesting uh, i i give to you promising young gay uh, it's about an underage boy that goes to kevin spacey's party <laughs> i love it already <laughs> oh my god think I of the soundtrack go to- now <laughs> yes 
Any um, any last words on promising young woman? I feel like we were gonna say something, but I forgot. I think uh. this movie. Oh, we were gonna t- the soundtrack of this movie overall turns the songs. There are songs that we know and have heard before, and it turns it gives them new meaning. And I think. Well, that it makes something. them either sinister or empowering. Like, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. nothing's going to hurt you, baby. When Bo Burnham's introduced in the coffee shop, it's a very ironic undertone. And then it's raining men. It's like, maybe we don't want it to rain men. And then- exactly. <laughs> and I think that alone makes Samara Fernell the best director ever since Quentin She's Tarantino. phenomenal. She's so great. Turning songs, giving them new meaning, showing new... Uh, she's does different versions of songs, right? Like the quartet version of Britney um, and the remix of Charlie XC. But that, I've never seen that since Quentin Tarantino. So Emerald is both the new Hitchcock, the new Quentin Tarantino. She's, I can't wait to see what she does next. She, I mean, she's <laughs> I like, someone to watch out for. And she wants to make movies about murder and horror because that's what she told Bond, the director of... Um, parasite. So. <laughs> All right, we have to have a good sh- closer for this. Um, what do we do? So the closer for this is number one. Emerald has always said that she wants to make movies about murder. Also, that she writes to Britney Spears. So a woman whose Emerald... voice has been very silenced, and everybody is rooting for her to speak in court next month. She's about, she's speaking in court actually in a few weeks. I yeah, think. in June. Very very soon. Very very soon. Oh, in June is in June. Okay, yeah. so next month. Everybody's so, rooting for her, and that's really exciting. She was ridiculed for the longest time, and now I people are are just saying Britney. Emerald needs to make the Britney biopic that we've all been <gasps> waiting for. Oh my god, that would be the best. I mean, movie number two, collaborate with Britney after she gets out of this awful conservatorship and tell us the story of what that whole thing was about. Everybody, that's it. That's all we got. Thank you for listening. Bye. Free Britney. Hit me, baby, one more time. But free Britney. <laughs> free Britney. <laughs> <laughs>